I ask you to turn this morning to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking of how grateful I am that when I was growing up, I was surrounded by Christians who had me memorize Scripture. And uh, this, this particular text is one of the many that I was forced to memorize And I assure you, I never, ever, ever liked memorizing Scripture. Um, But it's an amazing thing. Most of the things you don't like doing after you've done them, you're joyful that you did them. Let's hear the Word of God as it's written here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Some of you were here a few years ago when David Wegner taught through the book of Romans, or maybe you had Rob Hooper do it for you, but uh, it's one of my regrets in my ministry and my pastorate that I have not yet preached through the book of Romans, but I think it would probably take longer than the book of Matthew. And uh, I think I need to finish Matthew and Nehemiah, and I'm not sure what all, before I could get to Romans. But it is important, everywhere we look in Scripture, it's important for us to see that although we might just memorize these two verses, that they have a context. And I want to say a few things about the context of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, because they're a pivotal point in the book of Romans. Romans is broken, according to people who are wise in these matters, it's broken, properly broken down into three sections. And part one takes up the first eight chapters, and basically the whole section is a discussion of the doctrine of justification and its consequences. So section one really is doctrinal and has to do with how we're saved. Then section two, part two, takes up chapters nine through eleven, and it deals with the rejection of Jesus Christ and therefore the rejection of the gospel by the Jews and the coming to faith and salvation of the Gentiles. And then also it explains the future conversion of the Jews. So really it's, it's sort of an ethnic section where it, in a big picture, shows how God has worked in such a way that you and I, most of us who are Gentiles, are able to be included in what in the past was the Jewish privilege of being named the people of God. So section one, the first eight chapters, how are we saved? How are we justified? And what are the consequences of this? Part two, um, how is it that those who are saved are, and at the time that Paul was writing, those who are saved are primarily Gentiles, that his ministry is one to the Gentiles, and that no longer is the gospel primarily focused on the, the, the people of the Jews. Now, These two verses I just read are the beginning of part three. And part three is the transition from 
part two of the book of Romans to part three, where in part three we find very practical instructions and exhortations. And then at the very end, what's typical for letters, of whether it's us or somebody else, uh, a bunch of greetings, a bunch of personal statements to individuals. So you've got doctrine, and then you have an explanation of why this doctrine of salvation is now being turned away from this group of people to another group of people. And then third, you have application. Now, you might argue that the first two sections are doctrine. But nevertheless, uh, like any decent time of teaching in Sunday school or in small groups or preaching, there's a huge section given over to application. Um, while I've been on vacation, I've been trying to finish a chapter for a book on covenant succession, and I was assigned the task of uh, covenant succession is the question of today, in the New Testament times, can we still claim God's promise to be a God to us and to our children? And as a church, we say yes, that we do claim that God is still pleased to normally build his church through our children coming to faith. And if, if you look through the history of the church, you'll see that this is the norm. The norm is not Billy Graham crusades where people who have never heard the gospel hear it and walk forward. That is a key part of God's work today. But God is pleased, as it says in Malachi, to propagate a godly seed through marriages. And uh, that's why churches are so intense on doing everything we can to teach our children. Well, anyhow, in writing this chapter, I was assigned the task of writing a chapter called The Emasculation of the Church. And so I spent many months beating my head against the question, what on earth does the emasculation of the church have to do with covenant succession? And as I began to write and think about this, it became apparent to me that really... When people stop having courage and trusting, having faith in promises of God, the first thing that happens is they start, stop disciplining their children at home. And so many of you grew up in homes that were in, in, in lip service Christian, but you were never disciplined. And we know that the Bible says that kids that grow up in homes that aren't disciplined aren't loved. Very, very harsh statement. But we know it's true because it goes on to say that we know we're loved when God disciplines us. That is how we know we're loved. And so it must be important that we be disciplined in our home. But when we stop living by faith and live by sight, the most important thing to us becomes whether or not our children like us and whether we hope to have a relationship with them in the future and, and whether our wife likes our treatment of our children. And the minute that becomes the primary question, you've got real problems as a child. Because you're not sharpened. And uh, pity the day you run into your first real foreman on a job. Because your father hasn't prepared you. Well, so, what starts in the home then moves into the church. And in the church, a lack of faith evidences itself in a lack of discipline in the church. So that a church that's cowardly is a church that doesn't claim the promises that God will be faithful to our obedience and produce fruit, but instead we think we have to manipulate the fruit. And so that's why when you go back and read, um, oh, books, uh, 
I won't go into the books, but when you read, but the author is Ian Murray. Ian Murray has done an excellent job of chronicling how in the last 200 years, evangelicals in America have turned away from faith in Scripture and the power of God to technique. And the Second Great Awakening in the 18th or the 19th century is largely a history of how Charles Finney and many others uh, perfected the techniques that now uh, an awful lot of churches are using to great sophistication. Um, and when you go into those churches, you're, you, you, you certainly do get a sense of your emotions. And the, the, the principal word is the word passion. You'll hear the word passion. These words change decade by decade, but the, 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 the real word today is passion. Well, as we move into a time when we're not living by faith, but instead trying to tweak people, trying to tickle them where they itch, and that's how Scripture speaks of it. It talks about the day coming when people won't want faithful teachers and preachers, but instead they'll want their ears tickled. Okay? Then what happens is the people of the church sort of turn aside in disgust, and what you have is a lot of lip service, and I'll get into this later in the sermon. Now, the question is, what on earth does this have to do with me talking about the outline of Romans? <laughs> Good, thank you for laughing. I hope some of you are wondering, where on earth is he going? Carol Canfield says sometimes she prays, Lord, bring him home. <laughs> Well, here's the deal. What did I tell you about the book of Romans? I said that the book of Romans can be divided into thirds. And then I said that the third third is what? It's application. Well, if discipline is not engaged in by your elders or your father and mother, then when it comes to teaching, the absence of discipline in teaching is the absence of what? The absence of application. Because application is where people get angry. And the recurrent theme in churches is people saying to you, look, it's not your job to convict us. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It sounds so pious. And of course, I would never claim to be able to convict you. I might be able to to be used by the Holy Spirit to do it. But then the question is, the Holy Spirit does everything. The Holy Spirit is the one that does every single bit of spiritual work that ever leads us to salvation. And so the question I keep asking myself as a pastor is, well, then why on earth do we need pastors? The Holy Spirit does it. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit apply directly to you and your life the truth of God? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit is pleased to use our mother, our father, our roommates, our pastors, our elders, our deacons, our older women. He's often pleased to use our children. And so God delights in using fallible, broken, sinful human vessels to accomplish his work. And so, yes, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us. And the Holy Spirit is pleased to use people teaching the word of God and preaching it who apply it to our lives. And the absence of application in a sermon is one more sign of faithlessness on the part of leaders who don't really trust the Word of God to be the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to change us, but think again that good stories are better, you know? 
that if you can tell a good story where everybody laughs and says, boy, I'll remember that story, that then people will think they had a good sermon, good poem, maybe quote, uh, well, I won't use any names, but you know what authors I should quote. Part one doctrine, part two, the Jews and the Gentiles, transitioning into part three, roughly a third of the book of Romans, filled with specific commands that you are to do, that I am to do, application. And this is the transition part, what we just read. Therefore, I urge you. So what's the therefore? Well, the therefore is the pivot that takes us from the doctrine into what it means in our lives. And what it means in our lives is not that we should continue to read books of theology, but that we should live in a certain way, right? Theology always has a purpose. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and that's what he's been describing, the mercies of God, that we Gentiles would be included in the covenant. Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your souls. Right? Your souls. Right, 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 right. Come on. Say, no! (laughs) No, it's not souls, is it? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Okay? Now, let's get into this application and let's start with this question of why does it start with bodies? Um, Well, what does it say about the bodies? It says that they are to be what? A living and a holy sacrifice. Now, the word sacrifice here should immediately remind us of other bodies, all right? And what other bodies am I referring to? The bodies of what? of sheep, of lambs, goats, of oxen. All those bodies that comprised what I think violates our 20th century sophisticated sensibilities, but I think is a very accurate word to describe the Old Testament worship of the people of God. And it's the phrase, a riot of blood. And it's hard to look at it. We don't have an easy time reading that section where we keep coming across all these bodies that die. But anytime you said to people in the ancient world, sacrifice, this is what it meant to them. It meant a riot of blood. It meant the death of bodies. And so when Paul uses this I I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The image we ought to have immediately is an image of death of our bodies. And what he's saying here is that in the New Testament, under God's new covenant, it is not to be the the blood of, of lambs and goats and oxen but it is to be the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which purchases redemption for us, but which demands that we ourselves climb the cross. And of course, it's His Holy Spirit that lifts us up. But that we climb the cross and we put ourselves on that cross with Him. 
The New Testament knows nothing about people who sin that grace may abound. It knows nothing about a crossless faith. Jesus was very clear. If anybody wanted to come and follow him, they had to deny themselves and take up their cross. So you can't have a crossless faith. In other words, because Christ gave himself and his life and blood for us, it does not remove from us the responsibility of ourselves dying. And this is, of course, the point that's being made here. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. So the sacrifice that we're to present to God is a bodily sacrifice that is living, that is holy, and that is acceptable. Now first, a living sacrifice. Today God wants men and women and boys and girls who are really alive. People who have strong pulses and strong heartbeats, firm muscles and good brains and fast reflexes. God does not want us to be walking zombies with sallow complexions who go about mouthing pious phrases under our breath until we're mercifully taken from this world. And if you didn't know it from what's said here, where it says that we're to be living sacrifices, I just ask you to look at the apostles and all the record of what they were that there is in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, and ask you yourself this question, uh, was Peter fully alive? Or better, was Paul fully alive? Or as Kierkegaard would say, was Paul a serious man? Yep, they were alive and they were serious men. What about Stephen? Was he alive? Yep, right up until he died. When we become Christians, God does not call us to sequester ourselves in a dark room and wait quietly until we hear the trumpet blast announcing Christ's second coming. But instead, he calls us to walk the straight and narrow path to be salt and light in this dark world, to witness for Him, to preach for Him, to work for Him, to teach for Him, to sing for Him, to study for Him, to serve the poor and weak and lonely for Him, to nurse for Him, to cook for Him, to clean for Him, to drive for Him, to cut grass for Him, to present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. Now again, let me return to this thing of bodies. Notice that it does not call us to give our hearts to him. That's how we as evangelicals would do it. I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, that you present your hearts a living sacrifice. The Bible does not know of such a thing as a fleshless religion through which God gets all kinds of love and service in principle or in theory, but not in practice and in flesh and blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your heart. But that's not what it says. It says, glorify God in your body. In other words, when we ask the question, what can I give to Jesus? It's very easy to answer, give him my heart. 
without giving them anything at all. It's very easy to mouth the words of religious fervor and devotion without dying the death of discipleship. It's very easy to avoid putting our arms or our legs or our cars or our eyes or our money where our mouth is. I want to read a quote from Kierkegaard. I mentioned him earlier. And Kierkegaard was in a state church nation. In other words, it was a nation where, like England that has the Anglican church, um, there was an established religion. And um, the older he got, the more intense he got about this, until at the end of his life he was so disgusted with the absence of anything approximating biblical Christianity that he simply stopped. away from that. Excuse me. Um, And so, at the end of his life, he wrote a number of things. I want to read one thing that every time I think of this issue of a bodiless heart religion, I think of this quote. Kierkegaard says this, or wrote this. He said, God would be loved, and therefore, he wants Christians. To love God is to be a Christian. But man's knavish interest consists in creating millions and millions of Christians, the more, the better, all men if possible. For thus, the whole difficulty of being a Christian vanishes because being a Christian and being a man amounts to the same thing. And we find ourselves, he says, where paganism ended. Christendom, and this is the word he uses for this state church, a church which is not sincere but hypocritical in its worship. Christendom has mocked God and continues to mock him. Just as if to a man who's a lover of nuts, instead of bringing him one nut with a kernel, we were to bring him tons and millions of empty nuts and then make this show of our zeal to comply with his wish. He says, God would be loved, therefore he wants Christians to love God as to be a Christian. But our corrupt and sinful desire is to create millions and millions of Christians, the more the merrier, all men if possible, because then to be a man and to be a Christian is the same thing. Well, the Bible does not know such a thing as being a man and being a Christian being one and the same. It does not know such a thing as a man whose heart belongs to God but whose body doesn't. And what it says here very specifically is that we are to present our, our bodies And our bodies are then to be a living sacrifice. John 7 tells us that Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And we are to present a living sacrifice. It's our Lord's intention to build us into a family which demonstrates his character to the world that watches us. We're not to be deadbeats, but instead we're to be living, active, fully engaged human beings who spread God's character everywhere we go. We're not supposed to be noticed because of the buildings that we live in or the cars we drive or the achievements of our children or the civic clubs that we're members of or uh, the organizations we've retired from or the gardens we tend or the vegetables we raise or the earrings or posts and studs that we wear. 
These are not the things that should stick out to others when they are watching Jesus' children. Rather, you and I are to be noticed for our spiritual qualities. In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, it says, Coming to him is a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Again, this theme acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're to be people who are living sacrifices, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. We're to present them to God as a holy sacrifice. Now, as it's no go to give ourselves to God in theory without giving Him our bodies and their living strength, it's also no go to give Him our bodies if they are not holy. You remember what it says in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, when it talks about how to engage in this riot of blood where animals are brought and killed. Again and again and again, what it says is this. It says that the animals that are brought are to be what? Without what? Without blemish, spotless, perfect. You know, I didn't realize until today something else that those animals are supposed to be. And I know you'll, you'll think I'm lying. Do you remember something else that they're supposed to be? They're supposed to be male. I never realized that until today. Isn't that weird? It says in Leviticus 1 verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. In other words, uh, you know, don't give your car that has 200,000 miles on it and is about to need everything replaced. Don't give the animal that has a gammy leg. You know, don't give the, the cow that has such severe mastitis that it will never produce decent milk although that would not be a male. <laughs> and then it says, I'm skipping a few verses, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And so... If we're presenting to God ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, we cannot present ourselves to God when we are impure and unholy, when we're wicked and sinful. Because that's to bring to God a defective animal, an animal that's completely blemished. Now, you might say to me, well, I am a sinner until I reach heaven. I will still be corrupted with sin. How am I supposed to come to God? Well, that's one of the reasons that at the beginning of the service, we always have a time of confessing our sins to God because God is pleased for us, as, as uh, Elder Wayne Huck read this morning, he's pleased for us to come to him admitting what we are. And you notice that Jesus said that the one who was forgiven was the one that started his prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. But if we come clinging to our idols of sin, and refusing to confess them as sin and asking God to purify us from them, if we come proud in our unholiness, in our wickedness, um, God will not take that sacrifice because it's a blemished one. It's a corrupt one. 
We can't wallow in impurity and come to God. We can't drink from the fountain of greed and offer ourselves to God. We can't eat from the plate of lust and come into the Lord's presence. We can't harbor bitterness and resentment and present ourselves to the Lord for His service. It says in Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Notice that same theme, a pleasing, a soothing aroma, a fragrant aroma. This is what Jesus did. Jesus never does it in a vacuum. Jesus then says to us, climb up on the cross. Now, we don't have to climb, but you get my point. He who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross. So there's the activity that Jesus commands. Take it up. Okay? And so we see here the theme of doctrine. Jesus did this. And then the transition, application. Always in Scripture. The doctrine and then the application. And the application is where all is squirm. The application here is an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is Christ. And then the next words in Ephesians 5 are, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Or the NIV translates it, God's holy people. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is why you need to read the Old Testament. Because once you've read the Old Testament and seen all this riot of blood, but riot of unblemished blood, unblemished animals, then when you read the language of sacrifice and the pleasing aroma, when you see Christ on the cross giving His blood, when you're told to take up your cross, when you're told that when you take up your cross, you must be pure and holy, then it's all a seamless fact. It all goes together. Then when we have the Lord's Supper, and I exhort you that you're not to take the Lord's Supper if you're living in a conscious state of rebellion against the one who bought you with his blood. Again, you go back to the Old Testament, to this theme of unblemished sacrifices, and it all makes sense. So you hear Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, that so you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It all makes sense. We don't bring our second best. We don't bring our corruption. We don't bring our trash to God. I don't know why, but the other, the other uh, yesterday morning when I came into the house where we were staying, it abuts the woods uh, up in southern Michigan. And as I came into the house in the back, I smelled something. And I came into the back room and uh, I said to uh, my brother-in-law who was sitting there, I said, there's a dead animal somewhere around here. And he said, no. He said, uh, when we got up this morning, there was a dead rabbit laying right there where you walked. But we threw it down into the woods. Well, you think, you know, who brought us this dead rabbit? I doubt it brought itself. You know, maybe it was a little bunny rabbit and a cat. One of the cats that lived there brought it. But, you know, that's the equivalent of what we often do and call it being a Christian. Is, you know, we bring these dead, rotten, stinky corpses and put them, you know, at the altar to God. And we don't even think about it. But that's not the way that the Bible says. The Bible says that we're to present to Him our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. Holy.
Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And then it says, acceptable to God, and obviously, a body that is presented to him living and holy is a sacrifice that's acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, worship isn't something we do where Sandy Patty leads us and we get chills. Okay, or whoever the contemporary jars of clay, or I don't know who's the contemporary people. Um, but rather, it is the work of sacrifice of our bodies which are holy. And then, that is spiritual worship. How do you know what spiritual worship is? Do you know it because you get a chill? Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about people getting chills. Tingles up and down their spine. But we know that it is real, true worship when we present our bodies a living sacrifice and holy. Then it is acceptable to God. Then it is our spiritual act of worship. And then it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The NIV says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Or J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase says, don't allow this world to press you into its mold. Now, people get offended when the church talks about the things the world talks about, because people want the church to be disconnected from the world. And so there's a common... Um, There's a common complaint about the church. The church always talks, and today it would be, always talks about uh, what it means to be a man and a woman, and then sexuality, particularly today, homosexuality. And I want to remind you that the reason the church talks about homosexuality so much today is because the world is talking about it. And because it's our job to apply the Word of God to our life as a community in such a way that you will not have the world press you into its mold. And listen, don't make any mistake about it. If you live in this world, it is trying to press you into a mold of endorsing homosexual practice. And if you don't know that, then you don't read magazines, newspapers, watch television, listen to the radio, or ever talk to anybody. Yesterday, I was getting bored driving down. I didn't have anybody in the car because I just didn't. And uh, I turned on Fox Sports News, and there was some dude on there who was having a talk show, except he was talking. And the only people that were talking other than him were being hung up on by him. And the reason he was hanging up on them is that some famous uh, baseball player had referred to, or football actually, had referred to some coach as being a homo. And oh boy, he was righteously indignant. And what he was righteously indignant about was not the pertinent thing, which was somebody was speaking publicly in such a disparaging and offensive way about another human being. I mean, that's worth being upset about, that you just kiss somebody off in public, you know, Jock shouldn't do that. But the real thing he was offended about was that anybody would use the word homo. And so we got this constant morality lesson 
about how using the word homo is demeaning to people whose whole identity is caught up in which body part they insert into which other body part. Now you're sitting there going, what? Well, make no mistake about it. That's the meaning of the word homosexuality, just as the meaning of the word heterosexuality is tied up with body parts. We like to think that sexuality is something about, you know, the color of our hair or the way that we talk or don't lisp or something like that. But that's not what it is. Sexuality has to do with body parts, right? And so when somebody says to you that they're gay, they're talking about their body and what they do with it. Okay, and what this guy wanted is for us to avoid talking about people who have their whole identity being body parts, okay, without doing it in such a way that it would be demeaning, okay? And so when he got done talking about how this guy should apologize and this guy should do this, that, and the other, and then other people should go discipline him, and do you think maybe that the, the, that the NFL... Uh, league leaders should get involved in all this stuff, he began to get calls. And call after call, you could sense that these were just sort of normal Joes. There weren't any normal Marys calling in. And, uh, and that they were out in the hinterland of America, and one of them was Indy, and each one of them kept calling up and saying, well, you know, what he did wasn't good, but, but why are you making such a big deal out of it? And again and again, he just kept hanging up on them. You know, because they didn't have his sensibilities and because they weren't agreeing with him. It was really quite telling. And I thought it's very interesting. When America gets to the point where a talk show on Fox radio that is about sports, you know, that the whole emphasis on it is teaching all of us this little morality play, medieval morality play, that we ought never to use the word homo in a demeaning way because it gets at the essence of certain people's identities and it's very hurtful to them. All right. The world is trying to press you into its mold. So I got sick of them. And so I, I, I wanted to call and say, why are you hanging up on all these people? Aren't they your constituents? And then I thought, no, there's a better way of dealing with this man, and that is to change the channel. And so I changed the channel, and I run into an Episcopal priestess who is on with a Baptist pastor, Jerry Falwell, don't remember her name, and they're talking about homosexuality. <laughs> Bob just said, oy vey. <laughs> and there, uh, this woman talked about how, um, and she really said this. She said that uh, she does not take the Bible to be the written word of God, but rather a record of a certain religious people group's experience of the religious, the spiritual. And how she believes that Jerry Falwell loves Jesus just as she and other Episcopalians do, but that we have a different way of approaching Scripture. And it was very smooth. It wasn't as abrasive as this guy on Fox Sports but again, what was the goal? The goal was for all of us to look at somebody who is tempted to same-sex intimacy, which many of us are, us here, all right? Just like in the New Testament, it says that such were some of you when it talks about homosexuality, it's normal, all right? 
The goal is for you to begin to look at this as your identity. The goal is for you to begin to see yourself more and more as body parts that want to do slightly different things. And then for you to begin to present yourself to other people in the way that you speak, the way you dress, as a person whose whole identity is wrapped up in sexuality. Again, body parts. And the fact that you use your body parts in a slightly different way than other people use their body parts. Now, how, how disgusting is this? And yet, in the next few years, we're going to see all of America having their wardrobes redone by gay men. Right? We're all going to watch because it gets great ratings, and we're all going to begin to see the way that gay men dress a straight guy. And then we're going to say, well, that's cool, you know. That's like Beckham. It's metrosexual, you know. So I think I'm going to start like having sashes instead of belts. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm only wrong in the application. And you're watching it. You are watching it because statistics consistently show us that Christians are normal, that we do what Madison Avenue predicts us to do. Okay? How many of you know who Beckham is? Raise your hand. Okay? And it's a sport that America doesn't even play. We call it soccer. They call it football. And then you move into this issue. And the issue is the meaning and purpose of sexuality, of body parts. We present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy. Is a body that uses itself to have intimacy with another body that is the same. Is that a holy sacrifice to God? You know, don't let people just talk about gender. Gender is a social construct. Sex is a body made by God for certain behavior and not for other behavior. Okay, the minute we start talking body parts, nobody can get real cosmic about it. All right. And the truth is, this world is trying to press you into its mold. It wants you to see yourself as having an identity that's heterosexual from the time you're little. Other people who have a homosexual identity from the time you're little. And it would prefer if you called yourself a heterosexual instead of Tim. So that when they say, I'm gay, you say, I'm straight. And then all of us can have our primary identity being our sexuality. Because after all, that's what life is in America today. An unsexual life is a life not worth living. And you understand this. What would be a greater tragedy than somebody would go through life without having sex? And that's America. Now, the Apostle Paul says... Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. And you are being squeezed. And the question is whether or not you'll be squeezed. <laughs> In other words, will you resist or will you conform? And don't worry, it has nothing to do with whether or not you're gay. It only has to do with how you speak and how you relate and how you flinch, and whether you blink, and whether you're willing to just take a little step as a straight person who wants to prove you're not homophobic. 
In other words, that little signal that the world wants from you that you will no longer engage in the prehistoric and, and gnarly and biblical and Christian condemnation of all forms of sexual intimacy which Scripture constantly does. It just wants just a little bit from you and the impression, the mold, will only make a little bit of a pattern on you, but then you'll be okay. You'll get the doctorate. Your dissertation committee will allow you to go through. You'll sell lots of records. You'll be chosen for the team. You'll be cool. You won't lose your right to be a campus pastor. You'll be cool. It's all it wants. But what does God want? God says this. God says, therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you have been bought with a great price, and it's God's mercy through his Son, that you, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, that you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice all your femininity and all your masculinity living. <laughs> Holy. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And be not conformed to the pattern of this evil world, but be what? Transformed. It's, from this, it's the same root as our word metamorphosis comes from. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why we believe in preaching. Preaching is to your mind. It's not to your body. None of you have gotten chills in the last 45 minutes. All right? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what is the fruit? Then you will know what will get you to be able to continue to speak on the call-in program on Fox Sportsnet. No. It says, then, what? You will be able to test and approve what, what? Come on, what? What the will of God is. Now, is that your goal? Is your goal the will of God? Is your goal being able to nail the will of God? Or is your goal being able to nail the statistics about the NFL's coming season? What a disgusting waste. I mean, if it's your hobby, God bless you. But how can you nail the will of God? Do you know the stats of God's truth better than you know the stats of the National League, of the Cubs? You know? How conversant are you in the will of God? That's my son-in-law's favorite team, the Cubs. That's why I chose the Cubs. Let's pray.